Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. back to Tim Talks Politics Podcast. So glad to have you back with me this two weeks after Election Day, or a little over two weeks at Election Day while this when this airs. Uh, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about that post-election picture, because as you may very well know from tracking the news cycle, we're still up in the air. We don't know who the president's going to be. Now, president-elect as of today is, or the Uh, projected president-elect is Joe Biden. As of last week, he was announced as the projected president-elect by major media outlets, and currently Real Clear Politics reports that with recounts completed and done in most states, Joe Biden is projected to win the Electoral College 306 votes to President Donald Trump's 232. Now, that's all common knowledge at this point. Ongoing with this are court cases that are challenges by President Trump to several of the votes in many states, including Michigan and Pennsylvania specifically, and recounts are finishing up in some other states. Now, over last week, they did announce that North Carolina uh, went to Trump, so that result was finalized and all that good stuff. Currently, uh, the Senate result uh, is still the same. Uh, There's two Senate seats up in Georgia uh, for runoff elections in early January, and the Senate split is currently 50 seats being held by the Republicans, 48 by the Democrats. So the Senate races in Georgia are going to be at the forefront of national political news as we wrap up the recounts and the court challenges in the presidential election. The trend of GOP pickups in the House continues with the Republican Party up nine seats, and there's still about five or so undecided or too close to call races in the House. And so as things currently stand, Republicans can still pick up two to four more seats, uh, continuing to outperform in down-ballot races. Okay, that's kind of where we all sit with the election at this point. In my last podcast episode a couple weeks ago, I made the claim that this result of a divided government is actually good. It's good for America. It's good for our political system. It's good for the legitimacy of this political system. And that question about legitimacy is going to become more important in today's uh, discussion. But bottom line, it's better for America. And there's nothing I've seen in the last two weeks to make me really question that basic conclusion. So I'm going to spend the balance of this podcast episode doing is unpacking some of the major questions and and premises uh, that came out of my last podcast episode and have continued to kind of develop and sharpen as the post-election landscape has started to come into greater focus, especially with exit polling data coming out and all that good stuff. Now, I should say exit polling data is still incomplete. It still hasn't been refined very much, but there's been some interesting interesting indicators uh, coming out. So what we're going to do in the remainder of this podcast and in coming podcasts as we close out the year is I'm going to talk first about some of these major trends uh, or what are looking like major trends uh, coming out of the election, which I think are going to have ramifications in midterm elections in 2022 and in the next presidential election in 2024. So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about, uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the Electoral College. My next uh, podcast episode is set to air in early December, and the Electoral College will be meeting in the week or so following that. And so I think it'll be a helpful reminder as to why we have the Electoral College and what the idea and theory behind it is. Uh, Fundamentally, the debate over the Electoral College 
comes down to what do we mean by representation in the American democratic system? Who gets represented? How do they get represented? What does representation mean? Uh, and, and we're going to kind of talk about that. And hopefully I'll have someone on there to talk with me uh, about that. And hopefully that'll be another uh, interview. And then thirdly, in mid-December, by then we should have an electoral college meet, a declared winner of the presidential election, so an official president or president-elect. And there I'll take a look at the world in 2021. We'll look ahead to what does 2021 hold for uh, either the second Trump administration or the first term of President Joe Biden. That's all what's coming down the road uh, for me, and that's kind of how we're progressing through this, how we're progressing through this uh, next few podcasts. And then we'll actually take a Christmas break. So for the latter half of December, we'll be talking about, we'll be on break and Everybody can enjoy their holidays, as I'm sure after an exhausting 2020, that wouldn't be a bad thing for anybody, right? Okay, so let's talk about the post-election landscape and what's coming into focus. And I think there are three really big uh, political consequences of this election. Two affect the political parties, and a third is really starting to impact our society and political culture, and I think it might be the biggest negative coming out of the election. I'll save that one for last because I think it's a big one, and I think it's uh, there's some there's some lessons to be learned for all of us in that. Okay, so the first big trend that I'm seeing coming out of this is what we call the realignment. It's something I've been talking about uh, in the weekly brief, my newsletter, uh, over the course of the last uh, couple of years, really, ever since the primary got started. And the, the idea behind the realignment was just the idea that, you know, Donald Trump in 2016 triggered a political realignment of voters in the United States, that who voters uh, were supporting, what parties they were being part of was shifting. Uh, and there was some data to back this up. Even in just the last year, Pew Research reported that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party had essentially traded 10% of their voter base. So, Temp, think about like 10% registered Republicans decided to become uh, Democrats and 10% of registered Democrats decided to become Republicans. In the meantime, you also had a increasingly large number of registered voters who were independent, uh, raising questions about, you know, how would they vote? What would their voting patterns look like uh, in terms of who they would generally side with? You know, would independents skew Republican or skew Democrat? That kind of thing. So the big test for this realignment and the realignment theory was going to be this presidential election. Uh, what would that realignment look like? If you remember back to my interview with Tom Patterson back in May, the future of the Republican Party was looking fairly grim as far as this realignment was going. The idea was that you know, working class whites uh, supported Trump, but he was not picking up uh, support in African American and Hispanic populations, uh, and that in a what demographers talk about as a browning America, where uh, the white population was set to become a minority majority uh, within the next couple of decades, as you saw the emerging uh, Gen Z and millennials coming of age. Uh, Most demographers and political observers of demographics were basically looking at that data saying the Republican Party is just aging white. It's going to fade, basically, into kind of like permanent... Uh, opposition party status. The realignment, it was an open question as to whether that was going to solidify that picture or if there were any substantive shifts actually between the two parties. And what exit polls seem to be indicating so far is that that realignment is real, it's significant, 
and it may actually be challenging the thesis that demographics were against the Republican Party. For the first time in 60 years, uh, Donald Trump had made significant gains with African American and Hispanic voters. Uh, we're talking doubling uh, his vote in those respective respective voting blocks. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he captured 50%. It might mean the difference between gains, say, 4% of the black vote and 8% of the black vote. It's still like a small percentage overall, but the change in one term in office doubling is pretty remarkable. That's the first point. Uh, his, in the Hispanic vote, it's even uh, a larger chunk. It's closer to uh, it's in the I think it's in the like 25 to 30 percent range of Hispanic voters voting for Donald Trump. It's uh, it's significant. Uh, what we also see is that the uh, working class uh, population, the working class uh, population uh, across all racial groups, really, but specifically in working class whites, uh, continued to vote for Trump, even if a few of them turned back to the Democrats with uh, Joe Biden. We'll see if they stick with them post Joe Biden. But what it looks like this realignment looks like for the Republican Party is that the Republican Party, with you know Trump's brand of this kind of conservative populism, uh, it seems to be registering with lower to middle income voters of all backgrounds. Uh, not just white lower middle income voters, not just the white working class, but even the working class uh, in other uh, demographics. This could pose a real problem uh, for Democrats uh, down the road uh, with their particular alignment because realignment means that other groups are shifting to the Democrats. And the question becomes, who's going to be able to bring more, vo more voters? Who's going to be able to actually help each party retain support? In the, coming, in the coming years. What this can mean for the uh, Republican Party is that they're becoming more of what some political observers are already in just the last couple of weeks calling a you know, conservative populist party or conservative working class party. Uh, it's a party where the economic, social, cultural, even religious values of the lower and lower middle class grouping uh, are becoming more aligned, uh, and they're becoming more aligned under the Republican Party. Uh, that could be a significant shift because it could be signaling a more or less final divorce uh, between social conservatives and uh, big business, which has been a traditional tension in the Republican Party. So where is that big business vote going? Well, it looks like it could be going towards the Democratic Party. And so when we're talking about a realignment, we can actually see this. Uh, the Initial exit polls are indicating that a lot of the uh, what people are usually calling big capital, big business, big tech, a lot of the big votes or uh, you know college-educated whites, the people who lead and staff these uh, big tech, big capital, big business firms, are voting overwhelmingly uh, Democrat and supporting Democrat campaigns with their uh, with their dollars. So the realignment seems to be along this nexus. If you're a small business owner, if you're working class. Uh, if you're not college educated, you're more likely to vote Republican, and that might actually end up becoming a fairly solid uh, Republican voting block simply because the business values and the social values and the cultural values kind of align more closely along that uh, with that group. What this means for the Democratic Party, though, is they might actually have a more expansive tent in terms of interests, but not necessarily in terms of numbers. 
they might actually have a more divisive tent in terms of those interests. And that takes me to the second point. So we just looked at the realignment that seems to be taking shape. And it's one that seems to be indicating that American politics is going to be, is going to continue to see some really healthy two-party competition. Um, if the shifts towards the Republican vote, towards this kind of you know, conservative populism uh, that Trump has heralded, if that holds, if that holds post-Trump, uh, then the Republican Party has essentially established a new or will start to establish a new identity for itself, uh, a bigger tent in many respects to include uh, more uh, groups from across the country. Uh, and that's going to pose a challenge for Democrats. Uh, where Democrats are going to uh, pick up some advantages from this realignment, though, is they're going to be picking up the commanding heights of culture in terms of big business, big tech, uh, and all that good stuff. So that's what the realignment is kind of looking like. But it's going to look like really competitive politics now. It's not going to look like a permanent minority party in the form of like a aging white Republican Party and a permanent majority party with the Democrats. I just don't think that thesis is very sustainable at this point. But that realignment, even if it means more competitive politics, it also means potentially a more unified Republican Party and a more divided Democratic Party. And I think we've seen some initial evidence of that this uh, in the last couple of weeks. And that's my second point I want to talk about, and that's the Democratic Civil War. Now, people who've read my newsletter, who've listened to this podcast, know I've talked about this uh, on at a lot of points. It's something I've been tracking for uh, eight years at least. The basic hypothesis of the Democratic Civil War is that the Democratic Party is increasingly becoming a party of two very dominant wings. You have kind of like your old school, what's called the moderate Democrat, but it's really kind of like a, a Roosevelt progressive, a Franklin Roosevelt progressive, so state-centric, big social programs, very activist state in solving social problems. And then you have this uh, radical wing, which up to this point has largely been seen as a as a kind of like an activist wing within the party. It's farther left than the rest of the party. And this is where you find the the self-prescribed or self-described socialists or social democrats um, and who are basically looking at the programs and the social welfare programs and the efforts of the moderates of the party and saying, yeah, we need more of that. And it needs to be greater. It needs to just be more radical in terms of its social mission to reshape the American society and culture. And this is where you find the Bernie Sanders, the, the squad in the House, Ocasio de uh, Cortez, Presley, Ilana Moore, uh, others. So what do we make of this nexus within the Democratic Party, or rather this tension between these two poles? Well, what it seems uh, to be shaping up for, at least in the immediate aftermath of the election, is that these two sides are at odds. And that's not really big news. I mean, even in the primaries, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was on record saying she and Joe Biden should not even be in the same party. There's a recognition by the two sides that their goals and their values are increasingly at odds, that they are increasingly distant in how they view things. And it, and it became apparent uh, as the gains by the Republican Party in the House started to materialize that in a closed-door sessions and meetings between current uh, office holders in the Democratic House, that this conflict was starting to break out into the open. Uh, leaked audio from those meetings uh, suggests that uh, there's very different views among uh, the houses, uh, the House leadership in the Democratic Party about 
how to address the results of this election, whether they should, you know, tack to the center and be more moderate, take a firmer stance against, you know, groups like Antifa or uh, or the protests and riots happening in major cities, or if it's time to get even more radical or fight the Republicans harder in Congress for uh, for progressive legislation as the more uh, radical side of the Democratic Party is calling for. What we're seeing, though, uh, is that as Joe Biden tries to put together a transition team, starts you know naming uh, individuals who could be potential cabinet picks, is these are going to be very fraught political choices that are going to be closely watched to see the direction of the Biden administration. Makes sense that Joe Biden's going to try to, I mean, he's going to have a weak party. He's going to have a divide government. He's going to need his party unified as much as possible on the Hill to move anything forward. So he's going to be trying to strike very delicate balances just to please all the stakeholders. But it's going to become a more fractious coalition. As I said, one of the real elements of the realignment that I just outlined earlier is the fact that a lot of elites have now coalesced into the Democratic Party. So these are at odds with the activist labor-oriented wing. And so there's going to be cross purposes. There's going to be conflicting values within the Democratic Party. It's going to be a a more difficult coalition to lead. Uh, There'll be uh, competing objectives. And so it'll be interesting to see whether this emerging internal conflict within the Democratic Party, like the Republican Party in many respects, if it'll help the Republican, if it'll help the Democratic Party uh, kind of solidify a new identity and a new coalition, or if it'll just split the party. Uh, Is it too big a difference? And my reference point here is the emergence of the 2010 Tea Party movement within the Republican Party. In 2010, the Republican Party emerged, I'm sorry, the Tea Party emerged as a, essentially a populist wing within the Republican Party and led to just massive gains and taking back control of Congress during the first term of the Obama administration. But the Tea Party quickly ran afoul of established elite leadership within the Republican Party, leading to a internal struggle for control of the party that in many respects, uh, Trump kind of heralded the end of the old elites and and, uh, and the, the strengthening uh, support of the kind of conservative populism that the Tea Party heralded. Now, that's not to say Trump is a is a Tea Party Republican. He's not. But the Tea Party was kind of the first move in a rising populism within the Republican Party that Trump kind of seems to have read that pretty well and has expanded the tent of that populism in a way the Tea Party did not. And so one has to wonder if a similar similar divide is coming for the Republicans. I'm sorry, for the Democrats, if a similar divide is coming for the Democrats. So we'll see. So those are the two big pieces that I think are emerging out of the, in the early going of the post-election landscape. Uh, you have the realignment, and I think you're going to have a very, very different uh, political parties going into 2022 midterms and 2024 presidential election. You're going to have a Democratic Party that is more aligned with uh, big tech, big business, big capital, and more aligned with the activists class. I'm not quite sure what else to call the activist uh, wing or class. I mean, they don't really fit your typical kind of economic class. They're drawn from a lot of different uh, economic classes. They do tend to be predominantly college educated. So maybe we would just say it's the college educated class wherever they fall economically. I'm not quite sure, but for now, I'm just going to call it the activist class. It seems to be the activist class and the big business, big tech class seem are going to 
formed the like dominant groups in the Democratic Party, whereas the small business and working class is going to form the dominant groups within the Republican Party. That's why I, th- I think we're trending towards in general. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, I think that leads us to the third big thing that's coming out of the picture, and that is how both sides perceive each other, uh, because you cannot get two more different life experiences or views of the world than from the two groups that I've just outlined. Activists or the activist class, professional or amateur, uh, generally have similar interests to uh, big tech and big business and they want to make the world a better place, they're deeply socially conscious, uh, and they share a lot of uh, similar analytical frameworks about the problems with society, how to fix economy and politics, etc. That's where there's the shared. Uh, those are the shared parts. Now they disagree on on methods, perhaps, and probably even on on philosophies to a certain degree. But what I think you see is a is a shared narrative of the world, and that is essentially the core progressive message, which is human society is perfectible. Human beings are perfectible. We just we need to have the right people and the right mechanisms in place to. Uh, affect social change in a positive direction. Kind of like the whole idea of the arc of history is long and bends towards justice, to uh, paraphrase or quote Martin Luther King Jr. That's kind of the idea. The, the progressive ideal is onwards and upwards humanity. On the Republican side, as you have it become more of a party of working class, small business owners, these are people who are going to be viewing the world through that more individualist lens of uh, personal right and freedom uh, to pursue one's life and one's um, one's plan of life, one's you know pursuit of happiness, to use the words of the Declaration of Independence, uh, and that's just going to be a very different view of the world. Uh, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive views of the world, but they are going to be conflicting views of the world, and it's going to be a tension between you know the the role of families and individuals and their rights and what's just for them, the less defined but equally powerful draw of you know collective freedom, collective equality, collective rights. That's, I think, going to be one of the dominant political arguments in the coming years. The challenge with this is that this leads to very different narratives explaining political events in these two camps, and we're seeing it right now. And it's around the word and rhetoric of stealing, stealing this, this election. Surprisingly, over the course of this election season, Democrats and Republicans alike have used the word stealing to describe their opponents' approach to the election. Over the course of the summer, Democrats were saying that Donald Trump was going to try to steal the election. As we ran up to the election, Donald Trump was saying that Democrats are going to try to steal the election. Both sides were so convinced of their victory that they believed that any other result would mean that there was theft of ballots. There was fraud at the polls. There was plots. It's, there was this whispering conspiracy theories, for lack of a better word, because if you don't have any evidence that you're willing to put forward, direct evidence, saying that this is what the individual or other party is trying to do, really all you've got is a allegation, an unfounded one at that, at best, and at worst, you got a conspiracy theory. But what I find is that both sides were accusing the other of trying to steal the election. And the funny thing is, is that both sides got won something in this election, which makes the whole stealing accusation sound really, really strange. Two thoughts on this. One, this is why it's good that we're going through the courts. Whether you are a supporter of President Trump or whether you are a supporter of Joe Biden, 
you should want these legal challenges to go through the courts. Uh, do we want this to happen every election? Of course not. Uh, do we want this to happen in contested elections that are close, that uh, have ambiguous endings and have you know strange abnormalities at the polls show up? Yes, absolutely. You want clarity, and here's why. In a democratic system like the United States, legal legitimacy and constitutional legitimacy are pretty much the only sources of legitimacy that our elected leaders have. Uh, you either win your election or you don't. So if you can't say with convincing authority and proof that you fairly won an election, the le your legitimacy to govern is suspect. And that makes the other party perfectly within their rights not to accommodate you. But that also means that things don't get done. Legislation doesn't get passed. Cooperation and compromise, uh, which are necessary to make things happen in American politics, just don't happen. So courts, even though we don't think about them very much, courts are an incredibly important part of our electoral integrity. Uh, they safeguard the legitimacy of our elections, and by doing so, they safeguard the legitimacy of our, of our constitutional uh, system. Now, the final check on that, though, is that once the elections had, once the courts have ruled, once the recounts have happened, the ultimate sovereign of America, the American people, their response to the election, the recounts, the courts, is critical to ensuring or guaranteeing the legitimacy of those results. So it's not just a kind of like, you know, the courts hand down their ruling from on high and and that that's it. Uh, legally, that might be it. But then there's a there's a social and cultural phenomena that has to happen. And that basically means that the American people have to accept those results. After all, we're the we are uh, the final word and authority in American uh, in the American political system. So why is the rhetoric of stealing so dangerous? Uh, well, it's because it undermines that legitimacy. If you spend all your time in the echo chamber of progressive media or in the echo chamber of conservative media, uh, you have heard a particular narrative. You've heard a particular narrative about President Trump. You've heard a particular narrative about Joe Biden. Both of those narratives accuse the other of stealing the election. What this creates is essentially opposing camps who are not talking to one another, don't understand one another's narratives or goals or values, and who are increasingly convinced of the wickedness of the other group. Uh, and that's, I mean, that like there's a viscerally uh, negative reaction to a concept like stealing. You know, it's worse than fraud. It's worse than, it's worse than just saying, oh, there was a, you know, there was a mistake. You know, stealing indicates uh, a studied strategy and tactic to deprive someone of a right. And that's anathema in not just American politics, it's anathema in human society. Whether you're depriving someone of a right to their property, a right to their uh, belongings, a right to their life, like stealing anything from life down to personal property is a great moral evil in human society. And so I want to suggest that this rhetoric of trading accusations of stealing between the two parties in a polarized environment with a realigning political parties that increasingly have very different groups of people with very different narratives of the world. It's getting, going to get harder to cross that bridge and to talk to one another, even when we're using the same word to describe the you know current electoral landscape, stealing. It's actually kind of funny that uh, both sides can accuse the other of stealing, but only one side uh, seems to be dominantly concerned with having the courts 
uh, figure out if there's crime here or not. Now, to his credit, uh, Joe Biden has not stood in the way of uh, the court cases or the recounts. And I think that's because uh, whether it's just Biden or people on his team, uh, there's enough experienced hands there to know that this outcome and the degree to which it's accepted as official is going to be critical to their legitimacy, which in a divided government is going to be very, very important. So whether you're, a, like I said earlier at the outset of this discussion, whether you are a conservative who voted for Trump, whether you are a uh, independent who didn't care who won, or whether you are a progressive who voted for Biden, uh, regardless, uh, there's two things I want to leave you with here. One, uh, you should be concerned about all the stealing rhetoric. Uh, and I would even encourage you to refrain from using it or sharing stories on social media that use it uh, because it is not helpful to the legitimacy of this election. Secondly, I would say that you want to be able to kind of like hold two thoughts in your mind at the same time, and that is the possibility that there could very well have been instances of fraud in this election and that that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that Trump automatically wins. Nor does it necessarily mean that you have to redo the election. Fraud's usually a very uh, small portion of the election results. What I've also seen a lot of people talk about is the concern over their information um, sources. And I think this is probably one of the best responses to this whole realization that there are very different narratives being told uh, by the two opposing sides. Uh, if you've read my newsletter for any length of time, you know that I actually draw on sources from those opposing sides, from those opposing echo chambers. And that's because I'm trying to actually get those echo chambers to into conversation with one another. I want people to see that as separate as they look, and I know I just spent a few minutes talking about how separate they can be, you know, progressive media and conservative media. Despite that apparent difference, it's amazing to me the crossovers between them. It's amazing to me the fact that they can look at, you know, the same events and still draw different conclusions, but not not contradictory conclusions. Uh, they're just looking at the data through different prisms and lenses, uh, all of which can be helpful to developing a fuller understanding of the picture. So my first thought is please refrain from using the rhetoric of stealing uh, to describe, especially describe things that are still in legal proceedings, uh, right? Because I'm guessing 99 to 100% of my podcast audience, including myself, are not election law experts. So to pass judgment on court cases that are yet to be decided, I think, is not wise. But the second thing I'd say is if you're also concerned about the narratives you're hearing online, if you're feeling like they're too one-sided, uh, if you're trying to figure out how do these two narratives fit together, um, I'm going to encourage you to subscribe to my newsletter. You can go to timtalkspolitics.substack.com, subscribe to the weekly brief. That's where you can see how these different publications and different sources of media fit together or or at least converse and argue uh, and debate because that debate's still happening you know the the story of a hyperpolarized america where people aren't listening to one another etc that that looks that's what it looks like and that's what it sounds like on social media but when you get beyond social media and start just thinking about and reading about what different people are saying and how they're viewing the world, pretty quickly you realize that their buckets of information aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, that you can hold those opposing thoughts of fraud at the polls and Joe Biden winning the presidency at the same time, and that that's probably a more accurate view of the situation. So 
we'll see how it unfolds. But those are kind of the points I want to leave you with as we kind of wrap up our time here. So like I said, uh, what's coming into focus right now is we've got a realignment. It's happening. That realignment is causing probably more tension in the Democratic Party at the moment than the Republican Party. But we'll see what happens with the Republican Party. That still has its own, you know, pieces to work out. And then thirdly, uh, the word of caution on talking about stealing elections, especially when things are working their way through the court. At the end of the day, we should be happy that things are going through the court. We should be happy that we're doing our due diligence to make sure this is right, because at the end of the day, the election outcomes in American politics matter. They matter a lot to the legitimacy of who gets elected, to governing coalitions, and that is often a deciding factor as to the degree of how much you can get done and how much you can get accomplished in the business of government, in the business of uh, responding to the many uh, challenges that we have around the world. So that wraps it up for me. Those are my uh, scattered thoughts. I guess you could say this is post-election scattered thoughts part two. Uh, but it, those are the things that are starting to crystallize a little more as we kind of await the final outcome of this uh, election. So a couple of weeks we'll be back. I'll talk with you about the Electoral College as we anticipate the meeting there. And then we will uh, wrap the year with a discussion on uh, the year ahead. So in the meantime, you can uh, follow me on Facebook, Tim Talks Politics. You can go to my website, timtalkspolitics.com. Or like I said, if you are interested in subscribing to the weekly brief, check it out. Uh, you can also read some of the monthly briefs for free, uh, which are kind of uh, com compiled from different uh, segments of past weekly brief issues. You can decide if that's something you want to uh, sign up for at timtalkspolitics.substack.com. Either way, hope to see you on those platforms as we continue the conversation and continue to draw and gain an understanding of America's uh, place in the world and its political system. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics podcast. Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malash. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics podcast.